Hi, my name is Prema. I'm from Calgary, and this episode is brought to you by MPW Membership. Did you know that all MPW members get access to monthly group catch-up calls with the rest of the MPW community? This is the perfect resource to help keep you focused on your goals and to give you support through your music production journey. No matter what stage you're at, this is a free feature for all MPW members. Take advantage of this awesome feature and so many more using the link musicproductionforwomen.com slash membership. Uh, what am I saying? This is MPW, 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 the podcast with your host, Zyla Aria. Cool. A podcast about music, music production, production for the everyday musician, where we learn from experienced studio engineers and each other. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the MPW podcast. I'm your host, Zylo Aria, and today we have the lovely Richard Schreiber with us. So Richard is an award-winning composer for trailer music and has worked with loads of huge clients, including likes of Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, and loads more. So great to have you with us, Richard, and how is your day going so far? So I guess it's morning? For you? Yeah, well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so far it's only 9.20 in the morning. Uh, so just to give you guys some context about my day so far, I, I've decided to splash out on something for myself. This was my wife was saying, you know, Rich, you got you should treat yourself, you know. And I thought, okay, fine. I bought myself a posh coffee machine, uh, you know, the, a, a bean-to-cup coffee machine. Uh, so, so I've just had my second cup of coffee from that machine, and it's just it's like, oh, there's a barista in my house. <laughs> it's great. That's excellent. Yeah. So you're potentially almost bouncing around uh, from your caffeine hit this little morning. little shaky, yeah, that's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's good. Oh, it's good to give yourself a little present once in a while. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Good coffee machines are a great start to the day. Oh, mate, yeah. <laughs> uh, what, yeah, daily life upgrade. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Excellent. So today we are chatting about trailer music and all things surrounding that. Before we get into that specifically, I'd love to hear a bit about your background in music and and where you got started and how you ended up doing what you're doing now, which I think is quite a few different things. I love these questions because you've just invited me to talk for 40 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I think, you know, it's it's one of these, my background I'll start in the pots and pans cupboard of being a two-year-old. You know, uh, I think I've always been slightly intrigued by life. This, I'm, I'm going broad and creative here. Always intrigued by sounds. Always, just basically wanted to create all the time. Whether that was drawings, whether that was making up my own songs. You know, my mum gave me one of her little dictaphones, and I used to, I've still got the recordings of it. Here it is. Got this little uh, mini cassette of me recording songs about my GI Joe figures. So. You know, this this kind of, I always had this curiosity about creating, and you know, even polishing stones and all sorts of things, little plants and things. I always wanted just to create things. Uh, and the whole process fascinated me as a way to kind of, not transmute, but, you know, take the emotions that I was feeling and put them into something. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've been very good at communicating my emotions or at least being honest with myself about them. So I'd always find ways to, allow that to come out uh, and and then you know as I got older I you know did that thing where I was like oh okay maybe I'd like to learn an instrument and 
I got a keyboard for my 10th birthday and sort of learning all the nursery rhymes as you do, you know, and it was, it was cool. I quite enjoyed it. I liked, you know, I was fascinated by it and I liked to be able to play the ABBA songs that I knew, you know, it's this, uh, you know, this kind of world. And whilst this was happening, uh, the music in my household was uh, very much a world of like cheesy pop. So ABBA or Lionel Richie or Billy Ocean, you know, listening back, you know, it's cheesy pop, but I love it. Or dramatic film scores. So the Michael Nyman's piano score or the Last of the Mohicans score, you know, these, these, or even the Beverly Hills Cop, which was more of a soundtrack okay. than a, but you know, <laughs> uh, you know, that's how it's, so it's, it was movie soundtracks and cheesy pop. So uh, the piano was my kind of wave. Oh, I could play these cheesy pop songs on it. This is great, you know. Uh, and then one day my, my brother decided he wanted to learn the electric guitar and Obviously, he was my big brother, so I'd always look up to him and just be like, well, I want to do that. That looks so cool. You know, much cooler than me sat on a keyboard playing, you know, uh, gear me, gear me, gear, you know, that type of thing. Um, <laughs> so when he was out of the house, I would sneak into his room and take his guitar and sit in my room and sort of have a little play. And at the same world, this was, I think, for a lot of musicians, your teenage years is where your musical world both opens up and closes down. So I was suddenly realizing that there was this world of music that I could jump into. And at that time, I, I discovered rock, you know, uh, specifically the Smashing Pumpkins. And I got a little songbook and I learned, I taught myself their song Cherub Rock. And it was no turning back from there. I was absolutely obsessed with the guitar and learning songs. And I had a little tape cassette that I would use to sit and just write my own songs. And figuring out how what happens if I did this with my fingers on the guitar? What happened if I did this? And always just kind of, like I said, it was that curiosity about creating. I'd always record them, and I've still got those cassettes. They're not at to hand here, but they're, they're down there. Um, still got those cassettes. I listen back to them, and I was like, yeah, these are great. You know, uh, terribly played, but the ideas are there. And uh, this kind of carried on, and you, you, I did the natural progression of, you know, okay, well, I'm I'm playing these songs. I want friends to play these songs with. So me and my friends formed a band. And we started playing, you know, covers of the Foo Fighters, Nirvana, basically, you know, 90s rock and grunge uh, stuff, uh, which was awesome. I loved it. It was so much fun. All the while this was happening, art was also my thing. I, I loved drawing, painting, creating videos. It was, I just loved the art world. I loved the idea that they're, you know, and this is why the Smashing Pumpkins fascinated me as well, because Billy, Billy Corgan's lyrics were uh, complicated to say the least, you know, this world of like, there is reading to be done beyond what you initially see or hear, you know, the words they're singing don't necessarily mean what you think they do. And the same with these paintings, you know, you go see a Louise Bourgeois sculpture that's a massive spider and you go, well, it's a big spider, isn't it? You know, and no, it's not just a big spider. You know, it's this type of thing. It's this lovely kind of world of inner depths. And I think that's what we're all doing when we're writing music. We're Although we're writing a synth pop tune, what we're trying to tell, sing out to the world is those things we're feeling deeper. So this kind of, this was sort of bubbling around in my head at the time, you know, so I, I then went and studied art whilst pursuing the band, you know, air quotes, pursuing the band. And when you study things like art, you get, you get this kind of like strange push and pull where you're told to do this. So in the art, it was art foundation course where I, where I met my wife. And we both had the similar thing. It was like, you're told, this is what you can do, but if you want to do anything well, you have to do it like this. So, you know, my wife was told that she couldn't do uh, still life painting because 
No one cares about still life painting, you know. And uh, it's, it's this very it's this very bizarre world where they're basically like you have to be conceptual. Uh, so we both went, well, okay, we don't want to do art anymore. My, my wife went and studied something else, English literature, and I went off and went, okay, well, I want to be a musician. That's what I'm going to do. So me and the band. So we all went and studied in this uh, this place called the Academy of Contemporary Music, which is basically training you to be a session musician. And whilst we were there, we we won some competitions to be produced by um, Skunk and Nancy's guitarist. Uh, and we got some of our demos produced, and I loved that process of writing and producing. And it was there I realized... Actually, I don't want to be a musician. I want to write music. Uh, I want to compose music. And, and this was where my love of film score really blossomed at this point. I was listening to all of the films I used to watch, like Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands. Oh, wait, this is all the same composer. This is all Danny Elfman. So I then started trying to figure out how to play all this stuff on the guitar. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had this kind of lovely French chat with my wife at the she was my girlfriend at the time and uh, and I was like I don't think I want to do the band I think I want to be a composer and there was a course uh, in Brighton a university called music and visual art which was the study of music and the study of visual art and how the two intertwine and it was just wonderful it was 3 years of play it was just, you know, writing music for, for contemporary dance, like doing sound installations, learning Max MSP, learning logic. It was, it was literally everything. It was great. And my tutor um, was a fascinating guy. He was one of the orchestrators for Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, so he had this, this background in film as well. So I used to constantly pester him for information. And it was just great. I loved it. And it made me, again, made me realize that actually I want to, it's not that I want to compose music. It's that I want to write music for something. I want to combine my two passions, you know, the art and the music. And then, you know, as a lot of people find when they come out of university, you go, well, this is great. I'm going to make a thing of this. So, you know, I'm going to become successful in this next six months. And then obviously I didn't. It's really hard to get even anyone to listen to my demos. But through a, a kind of strange side channel, my friend came to me. And at that time, I was basically telling everybody and anyone that would listen, I'm a film composer. <laughs> no, I've not done any work, but I am a film composer. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. And my, my friend came to me and said, look, Rich, me and my, my band are doing a showcase in front of the uh, bigwigs, a record label, and we want some dramatic music to walk on stage to. Uh, at the time, I was obsessed with Sean Callery's 24 soundtrack. And I had been doing that kind of like tense underbed. So I wrote this sort of little underbed for them to walk on stage to in the same key that was basically just like one long build, which incidentally is kind of what I do in trailer music. One long build so that they could walk on stage, strap their guitars on, and then as the track finished, boom, all come in at the same time. Mm. And the lead singer's girlfriend worked for a music publisher called Boozy and Hawks in London. She heard what I did and she said, she sent me an email saying, hey, can you send me a showreel? So this was back in the day of CDRs, so, or CDRWs. Uh, so I sent in a CD of <laughs> my greatest hits, mm -hmm. you know, which incidentally, it goes against all the advice I ever give anyone. It had about 60 tracks on there. It was enormous. Wow, okay. <laughs> I was just like, I'm going to show you I can do everything. Uh, so I sent, I sent it in and she said, this one track is great. Let's bring you in. So I signed to them as a, uh, a composer. And at the time I thought, as most people do, you sign a contract with a publisher 
I'm officially there. I have made it. You know, where's my Ferrari? Where's my hot tub? Uh, but what I didn't realize was this was advertising. I was signing. I was going into advertising. Uh, so I was writing music for advertising. And what I didn't realize was that it's all pitching. So you don't see money unless you win the job. So I was sort of pitching endlessly, endlessly, endlessly. And I won some jobs. Um, but the interesting thing was the one track on that CD that she liked was the one track that landed my first ad placement, which was this national cheese advert. It was a big deal. You know, it paid really well. It paid like 20,000 pounds for a year and they relicensed it for three years. Wow. Uh, okay. So at the time it was like, cha-ching. Yeah. You know, <laughs> admittedly, I got, I got 50% because, you know, standard sort of library cut. So even... 10,000 pounds. That was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You know, I was what, 25? Because me and my wife had gone traveling uh, in between there. Uh, so we got back and uh, yeah, got landed this thing after it was about two years of nonstop pitching for free. Wow. And whilst I was doing this, I was also going onto all those networking sites and pitching my work as a composer to short film directors, to corporate production companies. And I was doing that stuff and that was. Yeah, especially the corporate videos, just so tedious. You know, basically, how many times can I try and rip off Coldplay without ripping off Coldplay? That's pretty much those two years of writing music for corporates. Um, so whilst I was working with this company, the girl who I was working with, Jen, she left and was replaced by this guy called Fick, Fickram Goody. And at the time, I was just sending them endless music. You know, please pay attention to me. Please love me. You know, that type of thing. And one of the things I'd done was this sort of ukulele, this album of me playing the ukulele, whistling and playing the recorder. You know, because back then it was really popular in ads. And I met him and he was like, this is great stuff. Send me more. And like, <laughs> okay. And our relationship kind of developed. And then he got a job in LA working for another company. And he said to me at that point, I'm launching my own company called Elephant Music, and I'd like you to be one of the writers. Great, of course. Yeah, we work really well together. Uh, and he turns to me and says, uh, I would like you to write some piano music. Can you write piano music? I said, hells yeah, I can write piano music. So I wrote 50 tracks in about three weeks, and I sent them to him, and they became the first five Elephant Music albums. Uh, but this, the, the, the lesson I keep telling everyone is, first, it takes some time to build relationships, but secondly, you've got to keep... You gotta keep producing, producing work. And he then started focusing on film trailers, because up until then we were hammering advertising. And advertising's it's a it's a completely different ballgame, really, actually, the way you the way you do it. You know, you'd I'd be having conference calls with the ad execs uh and the directors and the producers, and some of the adverts would have the New York office the Rio de Janeiro office and the London office all working on the same ad at the same time. So you'd go on this conference call and the guy from New York would be like, I love this part, but I don't like this part. And the guy from London would say the complete opposite. You know, and the guy from Brazil would say something completely different. So you're sort of going, okay, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with this information. Um, yeah. So we started working on trailers and I didn't really win anything because I, I, I didn't even realize trailer music was a thing. I thought it was the film score composer who wrote the trailers. So lots of things were happening at the same time. I was working with other companies. Uh, and all this while, I should really have said I was teaching music. I was a music teacher. Because I was, you know, although I got that big ad, it wasn't enough to really 
allow me to jump ship, I guess. And I still love teaching. I was teaching young kids. So I used to teach ages four up to 18, uh, a variety of things, whether it was classical guitar, electric guitar, ukulele, African drumming, production. It was pretty much whenever the head teacher of a school said, can you do something? I'd say, yes, (laughs) yes, give me money. So yeah, I loved it. uh, And I don't regret having done it because seeing a child's face light up when they finally realize they love music is absolutely priceless. So yes, all this while I was teaching at the same time as kind of pushing my career as a composer. And then I'd gotten to this point, I was teaching a, a, a college and that year group I had at the college were so difficult, you know, they were very physical, you know, uh, and they were very, it was kind of like babysitting, <laughs> really, you know, babysitting 17 year olds who didn't want to be there, even though they opted to be there. So I turned, I turned to my wife and said, look, I just don't want to do this anymore. I uh, I'd got to the point where I just didn't want to teach. She just said, look, just hand in your notice see what happens. Mm -hmm. So I handed in my notice to all the schools I was teaching at. And lo and behold, I got an email from Boozy and Hawks saying, there's a Japanese film company who are doing a feature film and want you to score it. (gasps) And then Vic turns around to me and says, oh, we just won two ads. So there I had all of a sudden enough money for that year to go full time. That's amazing. And I haven't looked back since. Uh, And I do, I do often say this to my students and anyone, anyone who listens uh, sometimes you have to take that. It's like you have to take that leap of faith, like in Indiana Jones. Only the penitent man shall pass. You know, you, you you see ahead of you a giant chasm, and you just have to step out there and see what happens. And sometimes it doesn't work, but you'd be surprised. And since then, I I was going full time, and obviously, when you go full time, you go into panic mode. So I was. I then started working with loads of companies all at the same time. Still doing corporates, still doing ads, still doing trailers, still doing whatever they would offer me. And then I read Tim Ferriss's book, uh, Four Hour Work Week, about, uh, and he introduced you to uh, was it Pareto's principle of eighty twenty, and I and it was so basically like, what twenty percent of your work is bringing eighty percent of your income? And I looked at all the work I was doing, and I realised, oh, working with Vic is perhaps ten percent of my work, and it's bringing in at least ninety five percent of my income. So I turned around to all of the other companies and said, sorry, bye. <laughs> and again, my, my work just skyrocketed after that. I started producing more work for trailers for Elephant Music. And because I was giving them more work, more clients were getting it, I was getting more placements. Um, so yeah, uh, and I haven't really looked back since. Uh, that's the long form of how I got into trailer music. It's, it, to be fair, it's not really the long form, it's more of the abbreviated but maybe yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> okay yeah lots kind of uh going on there in in different ways and um how you ended up there but thank you for for sharing that and um kind of going into trailer music because like you said that you didn't know that was a thing at, at a certain point maybe some of our audience uh, doesn't either so when we're talking trailer music what exactly are we talking about Okay, so I want to clarify a few myths on this one. So it can be the film composer who writes the trailer music, but it rarely is, if at all. But what trailer music is, by definition, is music that is used on motion picture advertising. So film trailers, as we know them. Uh, And that could be for the big feature trailers, which we see at the cinema, or it could be on TV spots, which we see 
on TV, or it could be for socials, which we see on social media. And the uh, second myth I want to bust on that is that a lot of people, if they understand trailer music is a thing, they then think that trailer music is just epic orchestral music, which it is not. Okay. You can write almost every style of music and still be a trailer music composer. There is an element of, uh, sort of air quotes, trailerization once you dive into the structures and the kind of the sound palette. But, you know, a lot of my work that has been the most successful has been very far from epic orchestral. Okay. Oh, yeah. Two things that I definitely didn't know about trailer music. So that's uh, that's great to start there. And then going into, so you were saying, you know, working with Vic on the trailer music uh, seemed to be the most successful avenue for you. So how does that, you know, where do you uh, get into the process there or how do you get hired for a particular job? Is it always you going out with a uh, kind of pitching for a brief or how does that work? Okay. I presume you mean like if I was already working with a trailer music publishing company, you know? Well, I mean, would that be step one before you, before anything else uh, comes along? Uh, Yeah. It's as with every avenue of income in the music industries, there are many doors to the same room. Uh, So Let's first of all talk about the steps in the process of creating a film trailer. There'll be the film company will hire a trailer trailer house. And that trailer house is basically an advertising company that works specifically for film companies. So they're called trailer houses. And they they will then pitch to the client how they will handle the advertising of their film. And that comes in the form of feature trailers, teaser trailers, TV spots social spots, promos. There's a whole bundle of them. You know, some, some for instance, like uh, Captain America Civil War that had 200 TV spots. Uh, there's a huge amount of advertising going on. So that company, the Trailer House, will pitch each trailer and each cut to the film company. But whilst that's happening, other Trailer Houses will also be pitching. Okay. And Within each Trailer House, there will be a one, perhaps more, editor cutting each of these trailers and those editors so there will be several of the same trailer being cut so perhaps they're going for trailer one which is the first big release you know they go so there might be at any given time 10 plus versions of trailer one being cut so each editor will then be selecting music either from their library of music which is delivered from all the trailer music libraries or they will have a custom composer working on it and again much like advertising you don't get paid until they win mm. so i've had it numerous times where i have won out on a trailer but that trailer hasn't won out over other trailers i see okay so i thought i was doing custom work i thought i'd landed two of the biggest films i could possibly have landed at the same time it was a um, a big DC film and a big sci-fi film, both trailer ones, and they both said, yep, the editors, they love your music, it's on. I thought, this is it, this is it, bring on the golden rain, you know? Well, that sounds terrible. Yeah, <laughs> you know, bring on the gold. Uh, and, and then those trailers didn't win out. So there is this whole process, and sorry, I just want to elaborate this other thing, is that then there's the trailer music companies that write and create music specifically for trailers 
Right. So it seems like there are a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that need to fit perfectly for, for you to be successful in, in getting, uh, getting that placement, uh, which probably a lot of them are completely out of your control. Yes. Which is, uh, yeah, quite frustrating, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, but I guess all part of, all part of the fun. Okay. So say that you were, um, I, I guess when you mentioned that the trailer houses would be picking from a library or, um, picking a composer, you would be kind of in the composer or kind of making music for the libraries as well. Yeah, so basically the two avenues for a trailer music composer are custom or library, really. Yeah, okay. Um, right, so say for the custom option, what kind of instructions would you get to then make something for? Yeah, custom. Again, that varies tremendously. Sometimes you would just get a call or an email from the music supervisor so just to kind of elaborate, the music supervisor is the person that oversees all the music placement on all the trailers. So they're kind of in charge of where something goes. The editors have say as well, but the supervisor will be kind of like overseeing everything. So you might get a call from the supervisor who says, hey, we're doing this for this. Can you do it? And it's, uh, it can be as simple as that. Okay. Uh, or you get uh, uh, an NDA so non-disclosure agreement sent to you. You have to sign it before they send anything over to you. And then you'll get the trailer. This isn't quite as common as you'd like to like it to be. And then you write to the picture. And then, then, and then there's a myriad of options in between. So once I had a trailer sent to me, I was like, great, they're sending me the trailer. This hardly ever happens. And it was 2 minutes 20 of black screen and then blips. <laughs> <laughs> like... Here's your edit point. Uh, here's your edit point. Or they did, or they send me just the voiceover. Okay. Uh, or they send me the audio for the whole cut. Um, or they, they, like I said, or they say, "Can we just love what you do? Can you write us a piece of tr a piece of music?" And you send it. Then they cut to your music. Then they send it back saying, "Can you make these changes?" Right. So, you, would you get some sort of uh, background on I guess you, you'd know a little bit about what the film is about maybe so that you can have some sort of idea yeah the, the tricky part there is you are often working to the interpretation of the trailer house because I'm sure you've all had this experience where you've seen a movie trailer and then been like I'm seeing that that's epic and then you go to the cinema and see it and you go what yeah <laughs> this isn't like the trailer because that was the trailer house's interpretation of the movie and how they were going to get more bums on seats. So you might assume that, oh, okay, this is a Star Trek film. I, I, sh I know what's going to happen in this trailer. It's going to be this, it's going to be this. And then they say to you, no, we're going for this angle. Right. You know, uh, so there's, there's all sorts of different angles you can go. Uh, with custom, the best angle is always go with the story, which is one of those annoying sentences that's much, much harder <laughs> than it is to say. Okay, I see. Okay. All right. And then if you are pitching or creating music for the libraries, then how do you how do you go about that? Is it just any type of sound or uh, what's the approach? So this is my jam. Uh, it's basically production music, but it's focused specifically for trailers. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways this could happen. 
it works in two ways. Pretty much, if you kind of collapse everything into two groups of you pitching an idea to the to the trailer music company, the trailer music company asking you to do something. Uh, but it all revolves around trying to figure out the trends, what's doing well now, and what's going to do well later. The trends are often dictated by Oscars. So the Oscar-winning score, then you'll see trailerizations of that happening. So after the Moonlight score, with that incredible violin track, I forget which one it's called, it's this wonderful, it's like this myriad of movements and arpeggios, it's just lovely. Then all of a sudden, we got a ton of briefs saying, and we still do, you know, solo violin or small violin ensembles, very classical sounding, but trailerized. And trailerization, just for those of you who aren't sure, is basically just making something sound larger than life. So rather than it just being a solo violin, you'd throw in sort of big sub hits or sort of a, a nice sub bass in the, the final minute of the track to really give it that trailer sound. Because when you go to see a trailer, the sounds are huge. And you so you need to be carrying a lot of weight in your track, even if it is just a solo violin. Okay. So uh, when you're pitching uh, something for maybe the library or, or I guess even for the, the composition, would you say that someone that's looking to do this needs to be familiar with multiple genres or not? Yes, it's kind of a tricky one to answer that actually because – for me, the genres and styles are almost irrelevant in a way that the most important part is, do you understand the structures? Can you give your track a sense of character? And do you understand the basics of trailerization? Because uh, you'll notice that lots of commercial music gets placed on trailers. So, you know, you don't have to know a ton of stuff. There are some incredible hip-hop producers who land trailers all the time. There are some incredible classical writers who land trailers all the time. You don't have to know a ton of genres and styles. It's just that, that thing of, can you write fantastic music? Can you structure it correctly? Because writing, writing a great song is not the same as writing a great piece of production music, specifically trailer music, you know? All the trailer music we write, even if it is EDM, even if it is dramatic piano, it has to bring with it the three acts of a film. And that's the way we write trailer music. Act one, act two, act three. Act one sets the mood of the film. Act two brings in the drama and the pace. Act three, throw everything at it. This is the <laughs> explosion. This is the climax. Uh, and even when you're doing dramatic piano... You know, it, it will equate to act one is a reverb soaked piano playing a few notes. Act two is the main arpeggio, the main riff, sort of driving the track forward with the strings coming in. Act three is the orchestra joins the piano for this huge sort of Michael Nyman-esque explosion of arpeggios. Same with if you were doing if you were doing strings and beats, like you know, hip-hop writing. Act one, you wouldn't throw all of your stuff in the first 30 seconds. You'd perhaps introduce the hi-hat. You'd have a lovely sort of 808 bass, something like this. Then you'd come in 
with the full-on kit in Act 2. Then you'd bring in the other elements in Act 3. You'd sort of layer everything to tell the story so that you give the editors the chance to have your track cut up and it still make sense. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I could almost hear uh, hear that kind of happening as you said it from you know trailer music that I've heard, which is which is really cool. Then looking at uh, the the music that you're creating, is that always a completely uh, solo process, or do you get other instrumentalists involved uh, or anything like that? It's largely just me. There are some very very successful trailer music duos. Uh, like uh, Zvi and Two Steps from Hell are superhuman, two composers, producers working together. Generally, you know, it also depends how your relationship is with the producer. Uh, What I mean by the producer, I mean uh, the person overseeing the musical project. So if you're working with a trailing music company, there'll be a producer, whether it's the head of the company or a producer specifically, who will say, we want this album, can you do it? And you send over your work to them and they say, great, can we change this, can we change this, can we change this? So there is a collaborative element between you and the producer then, much like if you're a recording artist, there would be a collaborative element between you and the producer. The producer would say, hey, let's chuck some tambourines on the chorus. And you'd be like, what? That's crazy. You know, that type of thing. And sometimes there will be instrumentalists. So we have recorded with orchestras. uh, And again, I did some, uh, I did three albums of, trailerized string quartets recently which was so much fun and it wasn't actually a string quartet it was one string player who manages to play all of the string instruments he is a absolute machine yeah and also in time and in tune you know and the stuff i was sending him was basically impossible because you know i'm not really writing for the violin i'm just writing for the keyboard and just chucking the parts to him so it varies you know it can be as collaborative as you want it to be there are some composers who will sort of work on an album sort of tucked away in their cave of wonders and then come out with this magnum opus, you know. Whereas me, I like to just send over 30-second demos, you know. Is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Is this right? You know, but that's that's the working relationship I have with uh, Vic Elephant Music. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's cool. When you uh, get a brief or a call or, or something like that and you are told about a particular mood I don't know if that's kind of maybe the instruction that you get from the the trailer house how do you go about bringing that mood into the trailer are there any specific techniques that are used to do that or maybe particular instruments that are tied to certain moods oh uh, that is a many faceted question okay. <laughs> <laughs> So if generally it's the mood is determined by what film you're working on. So is it a horror trailer? Is it a family trailer? Is it this? Is it that? So uh, that will determine largely what you do. The instrumentation can vary. It can be as creative as you do what you want. We love what you do. Or it can be as uh, dictated as we don't want to hear a cello. We want to hear a violin and a piano and that's it. You know, it can be. So it depends on what boundaries are put in for you. Okay. Uh, So let's say there is a boundary put in place. So for instance, uh, I'm kind of known for a few different styles. Uh, One of them is dramatic piano. 
or at least piano, basically, writing for the piano. Even though, guys, I'm not a pianist, I just love trying to get better at playing the piano, um, or at least just love how easy the arpeggios are to play. So they'll come to me and say, yeah, we want you to do some dramatic piano. So you you know how the track is going to be structured, the three-act structure. So you know what you do. Then it's just a case of the mood would then, much like a song, would be di- dictated by the chord progression you choose. And if it's not dictated by that, then it's dictated by how you process the sounds that you've captured. You know, Because you could choose uh, an overly upbeat chord progression, but the way you then process those things could dramatically change it. So mood's a tricky one, but the way it would generally work is you would get a brief. Working for a library, you'd get a written brief that would say, we want this, and they would give you a sort of opening paragraph about what the project is about. These are the things we want you to do, and they'll send in some existing trailer references and then some non-trailer references, and then you could get uh, then some more specific notes like instrumentation. Uh, so often your work is dictated by what has gone before. So uh, mood's a tricky one because sometimes you can be working on a track that you think is sad. And then you show it to someone else and they go, oh, this is nice. <laughs> no, no, it's supposed to be terribly sad. Uh, so sometimes, you know, it's the same with any, any creative work. Sometimes you get lost in the in the trees, you know, what's the saying? You can't see the wood for the trees. But yeah, generally the mood in trailers is dramatic, generally. Uh, or I think cinematic maybe is a nice, it's not really a mood, but the way you, the way you produce your work is, has this sense of scale and weight. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So that's good. It sounds like everything sort of has that underlying um, tone uh, which, you know, no matter what you're kind of working on, uh, which is good to, to take note of. And, uh, are there any techniques or tools that you feel like you use really often in what you do? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> tools. Uh, now, uh, as, uh, as I'm sure any music producer knows, there are so many fun toys to play with. <laughs> You know, so we deal mostly with sample libraries uh, because we are expected to carry the orchestral sound most of the time. It doesn't have to be epic orchestral, but you know we have to have decent samples. They don't generally don't don't like it. The clients don't like it if our sounds don't sound quality because they pay they pay well. Trailers pay well, so they want it to sound as high end as the production is. And that's often why, you know, when you do customs, they would, you know, they'd have the budget for orchestras to do it, or at least recording something on top to give it that element of mm. humanity. So sample libraries, and then it's just basically uh, choose your weapons because depending on what you do, you will need certain things. But the, my go-to one for anyone who's interested in getting to training music is you have to have epic drums. You have to. You cannot get away with not having big, massive sounding hits and like punchy toms and taikos. You need all these big drums to give it that trailerization, even when you're dealing with piano stuff. And, and I'm including here an orchestral percussion, so a decent timpani. 
decent uh, symbols, you know, this type of thing, because they give it this sense of grandeur, this sense of scale and weight, which you expect from the narrative of a big production. On top of epic drums, then it's just, like I said, choose your poison, really. it's We all have strings, we all have brass, we all have pianos. You know, I, I, very, I try not to buy too many libraries. Okay. <laughs> uh, because otherwise I would be spending all of my money on libraries because there's so many good ones. So I've still got the ones I, I have. I still have Nature Instruments Complete. Um, and my go-to piano is Alicia Keys. Uh, I absolutely love that one. Uh, I still use the original Spitfire Albion. Uh, not the one they remade because they they sort of snazzed it up a bit, and I don't I didn't like that version as much. I I have the original one. I use um, Spitfire Audio's Hans Zimmer percussion, which is excellent. And then there's sort of other a handful of other libraries. Uh, I use the East West Hollywood Brass, which is quite old school sounding brass, but it's, sounds pretty good. Metropolis Arc. These are all. I mean, yeah, that these are pretty much the tools I use uh, for orchestral stuff. And then with regard to effects and stuff, just sound toys. I love sound toys. If it's not Logic's native plugins, it's sound toys. Okay, that's good to know. And even on, you know, just the last bit, how you're saying, I'm happy to use a lot of uh, Logic's kind of built-in uh, tools because I think sometimes people can get a little bit lost in having every single plugin under the sun and then actually not not knowing how to use it exactly. So good to know that you are kind of limiting to to a few different things. And so thinking about the career that that you've uh, that you've managed to build, if someone was to go into this field, what would you recommend is a sort of the skills that you really need to be successful in this? Oh, I'm going to go for the the old classic. Yeah. Don't be a dick. <laughs> you know what? It's Interesting how many people say that. So there must be something to it. <laughs> yeah, there is. You can be the most talented composer in the world. If you aren't nice to work with, no one's going to want to work with you. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Uh, so, and I try, you know, and admittedly, that does take some awareness. And admittedly, even all the best of us don't realize we're being annoying when we are being <laughs> annoying. Uh, but, you know, there is the odd exception, but try and be like nice to people be nice to work with you know remember that the work that you get comes from a relationship not some robot <laughs> you know yeah um so build a relationship that's the the first thing uh and, and i know that's that's one of those ones where it's like well how do i build a relationship and you know simple things like if there's a company you want to work with finding something i thought this sounds a bit stalkery but you know Connecting with them on a, in a different level, like see see what they do, you know, see what they do, you know, go onto their Twitter account. Oh, they love Marvel too. I love Marvel, you know, just and then just that type of stuff. You know, one of one of the composers I know, he he just commented on everything that the certain trailer music houses, trailer music companies mm. did on social media. He would comment on absolutely everything. He then got hired. Wow. Okay. Because he just, uh, but it, and it wasn't commenting like. Well done. It was actually interesting comments. You know, I love what you've done in this section. This is amazing. You guys are absolute legends. I'm I'm so in love with your work. That type of stuff, you know. In the same way that, you know, if someone leaves a comment on your Instagram picture that's just like a thumbs up compared to someone saying, 
you know, I love how awesome your studio looks. Mm. <laughs> Even, the, you mm. know, that side yep. of things. Yep. The, the many levels of it. The, so the relationships are really, really important. And the writing is secondary, really. And I know it's, it goes against a lot of what you're sort of taught, you know, in our education system over here in the UK. It's like uh, your knowledge and skills are most important. You know, so we come out of university just hammering people with our knowledge and skills and we forget that actually the work will come Yeah, and you will get better. Because the first trailer stuff I did uh, was terrible. It was just terrible. But I tried to be nice and I tried to keep being of service and, uh, and, it, and I got there. Uh, now, coming to those um, rather than the soft skills of, I think it's, if, you, if you are interested in what skills you need, as a music producer to become a trailer composer, the first one is understanding the structure. So I, I have two schools where I teach trailer music. I have the trailer music school, which is basically just courses that sort of showing people the detailed ins and outs of trailer music. Then I, with, with Vikram Goody, we, we ran and launched Protégé, the Protégé school which is a, a year-long cohort where we teach people the ins and outs of the many genres within trailer music and advertising. And each week, it's the same feedback to, to our students. You've got to nail the build. You've got to nail the structure. If you get those in place, so much of the work is done for you. So if you're not sure about the build and structure, go just watch a ton of trailers. Watch those trailers you love and just write some notes. What happens between this time and this time? You know, what can you hear? Can you hear like a white noise riser? Can you hear a massive drum roll here? Can you hear a stop down, which is where the music cuts out? Uh, you know, all these things and figure out yourself. And also find the stuff that you like that's interesting. So many people are drawn to training music because of epic orchestral, you know, the big bombastic uh, larger than life stuff that you hear on the, uh, on the big Marvel trailers. But you can hear so many wonderful things. There's some amazing hip-hop stuff on trailers as well. Uh, that's so simple. But it's got so much character. It just completely captures your imagination straight away. So yeah, there's more. But I think those two. Be nice and nail the structure and build. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great, great starting point. And, uh, and like you said, I'm sure you can... You can gain a lot just from taking a bunch of notes from from other trailers that are that are out there and and understanding what's going on. So that, that's good advice. So going back to your career, I guess just to finish up, what would you say has been your greatest highlight so far? It's funny. I read this question and I thought, yeah, I should probably think about this one. <laughs> okay. Uh, greatest greatest <laughs> highlights of my career. See, I was this one's a tough one because do you go with your first? big placement do you go with the placement that enabled you to go full-time or do you go to the placement that creatively you're most proud of it's really tricky I think I sorry I, I was I was more like sort of just asking the question out loud um, <laughs> yeah yeah well I guess the thing that maybe was the biggest excitement at the time so it could be the first thing if that's that's what really kind of uh sticks in your mind but uh any of those three okay so i have i have quite a few that i would like to say uh but i'll start with this one uh was landing a trailer one with a demo okay that wasn't mixed and mastered up until that point there had been so much emphasis on mixing and mastering 
as a trainer music composer, you you are often expected to mix and master to an exceptionally high level. Thankfully, I don't mix or master my music anymore because it's both of those are completely different skills to composing. Yes, the mixing is entwined, and there is a certain element of balance that you have to work on. But landing a demo, which was a pre-release, so I wrote this demo for a, for an album. The publisher sent it out to a trailer house, and they put it on a trailer. Uh, landing that was the kind of confirmation that sometimes the mixing and mastering isn't as important as the kind of the nugget of the track, the character of the track. If you've got a good thing, you should be able to strip away all of the pomp and circumstance, pomp and circumstance of it, and still hear a great track. It's like any good song. If someone can sing it with a single instrument, and it still sounds like a great song, it's a great song. Yeah, yeah. You know. So yeah, that was a a big moment for me. Hearing my stuff being played by an orchestra, you know. Although you know, I I would like to highlight this this element. I wasn't aware of upper limiting until I started reaching this levels of success that I had been aiming for. So for those of you who don't know about upper limiting, it's where you're subconsciously reaching your li- your in- subconscious limit of where you think you deserve to be in life. And all of a sudden, you start self-destructing. <laughs> like, okay. oh, I've started getting back pain or like, you know, all these strange things, which is your subconscious basically saying, uh, you don't deserve this because we don't believe you deserve this. So I went, I, I was watching an orchestra play my track live and I was just sat there thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most wonderful thing ever. And I got the worst migraine. So, <laughs> so I get, I get aura when I get a migraine. So I basically go sort of half blind. Okay. So I was like, well, now I can't see the orchestra. This is awful. <laughs> and <laughs> And now, now and then the headache comes in. And I'm like, I can't even hear the, you know, the engineer saying, "What do you think of that take?" And I'm like, I can't even pay attention. I'm sorry, this is awful. <laughs> so, and for those of you that want to read about upper limiting, there's a great book called uh, The Big Leap. He talks about this one experiment, and I love this experiment for a good example of it uh, about fleas. So I, I can't. Fleas can jump the most extraordinary amount compared to their their size. But what they did was they put a bunch of fleas in a box with a glass lid and all the fleas were jumping about in this box and then after a given amount of time they removed the lid and none of the fleas could jump higher than that lid because they had an imposed belief that they couldn't go further than that i think that kind of sums up a lot about upper limiting uh, but yeah that was uh, even though i got the migraine i you, you can't hearing an orchestra play your stuff is is mind-blowing because there's like 40 people down there who have spent their life training to be good at what they do and they are spending an hour right playing your music and making it sound so much better than you thought it ever could do oh and actually and then my third one sorry i know you said one but my third one would be uh the first time one of my students landed a trailer so teaching someone else to do what i do and then them getting a trailer that was just like yes the business Firstly, it's kind of a like nice affirmation that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's not just like yeah. it's not just yeah. like me being a fool. But uh, yeah, that's yeah. I'm sorry, I cheated and did three. 
That's all right. That's all right. Uh, good to, uh, yeah, good to hear all of those. And they all are, are kind of different, exactly like you said. But then going to your greatest challenge. So I will limit you to one there, Rich. So greatest challenge um, up to this point, And how did you overcome that? This one's easy. Coming to terms with air quotes failure. Oh, or, you know, and the many ways that that comes in. And I, the reason I put it in air quotes is because sometimes you not getting a job might feel like the worst thing in the world. But what you don't realize is you not getting that job meant that you could then get another job and like land another placement. Um, it's kind of like understanding how fragile your ego is and how much as musicians we put our ego into our music. So the biggest struggle for me and I'd like to think I'm over it mostly, is not getting attached to the music I write. Okay. That is huge, actually. Because, <laughs> it, yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Uh, because what you do is if you attach yourself to your music, anyone saying anything negative about it isn't your music they're saying negative things about. You perceive it as something negative about yourself. So when you critique someone else's work, or when your work is being critiqued, sorry, you have to just see it as the service you've supplied, you know, and the education I've received in music was very much like, you know, you've only got a few ideas in the bank. And then when you have those ideas out in the public, people are going to try and steal your work. You know, you have to nail your copyright. It's your music. You know, all this type this little fearful marketing around like being in a band, basically. It's not like that. Like I can write a new piece of music every single day, at least I can write a better one than that. Just let it go. You know, Take Elsa's advice from Frozen. Let your track go. You know, <laughs> let it go. Because actually, you will become a better writer for it. If you allow other people to critique and analyze your music in the industry, you will then start to understand how to improve your music. Whereas if you do the thing which a lot of people still do, which is, here is my track, and somebody says, can you take out this, this section? You say, no, because I feel like this serves a better purpose than you understand you are stopping yourself from growing. And also you're being that person I said not to be. You're being hard to work with. <laughs> Don't yeah, be that person. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's learning to disassociate from your music. You can still be proud of your stuff you do, but you are an eternal well of creativity and ideas. You are not limited to your last air quotes hit. You're not limited to the, your last air quotes best best track you will write more and you will get better every day that's great i mean if you've mastered that of of kind of not not associating yourself with every piece of uh, art that you put out that's that is uh, incredible written i think loads of musicians can benefit from learning to do that um, for themselves. So, uh, so that's incredible. So I guess, uh, we might leave it there, but if someone wanted to learn a bit more about, you know, how to, how to do what you do, how can they find you? Oh, there's so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you want to learn how to write trailer music, I have some great courses at the trailermusicschool.com. Um, if you want to find me specifically, you can go to my website, richardschreiber.com. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel, uh, you know, Instagram, at Richard Schreiber. Uh, you, know, you know, if I don't respond immediately, it's okay. It's not personal. I'm just, I try to avoid going on social media as much as possible. 
I say that. I still go on every day, you know. So yeah, uh, those are probably the two the two best ways. Obviously, I do. If you want to really, really master your skills, you feel like you've got it, then myself and Vikram Goody run Protege.School, which is a year-long cohort specifically focused on 30 courses of music production within specific genres and styles, 30 business and mindset courses, uh, each delivered each week live. And then if your track is good enough, we then release it and send it to our clients. That sounds incredible. Cool. Thank you for giving us uh, those points to reach you. So what what's on for the rest of your day? Is it more creation of music or, or what have you got? Well, okay. Uh, well, oh, this is a nice question. I like this one. <laughs> uh, so as a practice for me to let go of my music, I, I write, uh, I say daily, but I write daily piano tracks. I just sit at the piano and improvise and record it all on a Zoom, but I release it. So I've done four or 500 tracks. And so I'll probably do some of those. Uh, again, it's just improvising. I just press record, improvise, and then stop record, and then send it to one of my friends who just edits it and releases it for me. Uh, this is just me kind of like reminding myself I can create new stuff every day, regardless. You know, it's this practice of writing. So I'll probably do some of those. And then I have some uh, team... Uh, review meetings for protege with Vic. So, you, you know, seeing how the team's going. <laughs> well, uh, there's, there's another thing that I did not know that you do, which is uh, the creating um, tracks every day. Not sure how you fit it all in, uh, Rich, but that's, that's incredible. So uh, thank you. And thank you for squeezing this chat into, into your day as well. Uh, it's been lovely. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I absolutely love what you're doing at MPW. I think it's so valuable. And I think the stuff you're giving your uh, community is fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, doing doing the best we can. All right. Well, I'll let you get to the rest of your day. Bye. See you.